So obviously, uh, we did not have this service last week. So, uh, and, and there was only 300 in, which is half our normal size in first service because of the storm that was last week. So, and this is really a two parts, uh, looking at how Jesus handled relationships uh, and those who he allowed into his inner circle, his core. And uh, so I'm going to review a little bit last week to go into this week. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Uh, again, this whole series is about looking at how Jesus did life and then applying it to our own because he modeled what life should look like uh, for, for you and I. And, and so dealing with relationships gets very personal. Uh, last week as we were in Luke 5, which by the way is on page 963 in the Bibles that are being handed out. Um, but when we were in this text last week, uh, it's interesting that when you get into the realities of, of what relationships were around him, it's always fascinating. It's like if you apply it to today, what kind of people would Jesus put in his 12 if it was similar to what he did back then? And you start thinking, occupationally, if it was fishermen back then, what would it be today? And out of avoiding offense, I'm not going to suggest it, but think through it. It's like there would be a targeted group that we would think, if you're going to change the world, who you would choose. You'd think CEOs who've come up with creative things or very intelligent people. And yet, Jesus chose, uh, in that day and time, uh, a, a profession of people that were, okay, respected, needed, but not in society influential. Uh, and so we looked at the calling of the fishermen last week as being part of his inner core. In fact, his core four, if you will, which was uh, Peter and his brother and John and his brother, those four made the, like the, the core influence right around Christ. And they were all fishermen. And, uh, and so we studied a little bit about how it wasn't the first time. The Luke example of when he called those four uh, was actually not the first time they went and followed Jesus. In the books of Matthew and Mark, uh, Jesus was walking along the shoreline, saw them out uh, fishing, and, uh, and called them in and, and said, follow me. So they went and followed him, and they did a tour around the Galilee area, and they saw Jesus cast out demons. They saw Jesus heal people. They saw Jesus show compassion to the, to the, the downtrodden, and they heard him teach powerfully. And then they returned to their fishing boats. And we don't know, but it seems likely that, that Jesus came with them. They kind of camped out next to the Sea of Galilee, and then the crowds began to gather, and Jesus, because Jesus was there, they had heard all and seen and experienced the power of this man, and so they began to gather. But the disciples were already done fishing. In fact, they were cleaning their nets, and uh, they were prepared to be done for the day because in those, in those days, the way you fished was at nighttime with these nets you'd throw over your boat, and then you would draw in. And you would do this from the shallows uh, because at that time those nets would go down only a few feet and the fish were feeding in the shallow areas and then that's how they would draw them in. So in this moment, in Luke, when he said, is in this instance, he tells the disciples after they're washing their nets to finish for the day. It's now daylight. He tells them, get back into your boats, start fishing again, but do so in the deep. 
Now those nets are, again, made to handle fish in the shallows at nighttime because that's what fish would do. In the daytime, those fish would go to the deep of the lake, but down around 80 plus feet. The average depth of the lake of the Sea of Galilee is 84 feet. So it was 84 feet and beyond at this point in time. It's daylight. The fish do not go up to the tops of the waters during day because they'd be easy pickings for, and that's how I would say easy, easy pickings. It's, is that all right? Uh, from the south, you're all right with Wayne. I know you would be all right with that. So easy pickings. <laughs> I just love that southern accent. Uh, for, the, for the birds to dive down on the surface and take any fish. So the fish are smart. They know to survive. They go deep in, during the daytime, and then they come to the shallows at night to feed. The fishermen then Fish in the shallows during the nighttime because that's where the fish are and that's where their nets can reach. So when Jesus tells these professional fishermen, go out, back out to the deep, even though it's daylight, and fish, it was strange. It was a strange command. But the disciples had already been around Jesus by that point. They'd already seen him do some amazing things. So they simply obeyed him and went out and against all their training. And, and, and they go out, they catch so much fish that they, it weighed both of their boats down to where they began to sink. They came in, and it was at that moment that Peter said, I'm a sinner. Get away from me, because I'm not worthy to be in your holiness. Because they understood now, he clearly, clearly is God. And so we can't be in that presence. And, and Jesus says, fear not, fear not follow me from now on you are going to fish for men that's such a different phrase from what he had said the first time he saw them when they were already out in the lake there were no crowds he simply said follow me and I will teach you how to fish for men so now they're giving up their career once and for all they already had their short-term mission trip with Jesus and now they're finally laying aside their careers and they're following after Jesus. And we learned that in this context, that when Jesus is choosing his inner circle, the ones he's going to do ministry with to change the world, he chooses a group of men that were willing to go uh, forward with him on mission and on point. So there are some things to learn from how Jesus selected his group. First of all, it should be noted that Jesus chose not to go it alone. Jesus chose not to go it alone. In fact, Jesus had the ability. Would you, would you agree? Jesus could have easily done his mission without the 12. Yes, there could have been a totally different strategy that he could have used. He could have gone on tour and kept touring the world. But there was a, a mission that was different. God was going to establish a church that was going to accomplish his mission. So he needed to train some people how to go it with him. And so it wasn't an isolated individual that was going to change the world. Jesus was going to provide the redemption, but the message bearer was going to be the people. So he didn't go it alone. Secondly, he chose in these disciples people that were willing to go with him on mission. They, they didn't they didn't struggle with the idea to give up their profession. They, they just simply they let it go. In fact, in the one text, it says they even left their father with the nets. So it was a direct decision to say, I give up the family business. I give up my career. I am 
going to follow after Jesus. A significant decision. So they were agreeing to share the vision and purpose of Jesus. Jesus provided the vision and purpose. They were willing to hook their wagons with him and follow after him. So in today's culture, how does that apply? If that's the way Jesus did things, is that, that within the church context, we encourage you to hook your wagons with one another so that you can accomplish the mission of God. So if we are intended to not go it alone, but to be with others, then you need to know other people who have the same vision and mission as you do in pursuing Jesus. So what we've done is we've provided the, the constructs of life groups. And a way to get into life groups is a, what we call Light Six. It's kind of a temporary uh, group that is formed for six weeks. You get to know each other, and you see if there's vision, purpose, and alignment together that you can do life together beyond. So it's a, it's a stair step into having relationships so that you don't go it alone. We're not meant to live out our faith isolated. In fact, many people that I know that claims like I don't need the church obviously doesn't understand the heart of God. He didn't in, in, intend for you to just simply bear his name and then stop. He intended for you to bear his name, become Christian, and so that you can experience a relationship with him, but also help others experience the same relationship. And as a result, you can't do that on your own. You need relationship with others. But it's not just hooking your wagon with others that say they're Christian. There is a qualifier in what we see here and with these fishermen. They were willing to go all in. It wasn't just by name that, yeah, we're followers of Christ, but we're going to stay fishers, uh, fishing people here on the Sea of Galilee. No, they, they were going to join him and say, whatever he wants from me, I'm willing to do. I'm willing to go all in. So, career, if Jesus wanted them to stay as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, they were going to do so, but they were going to do so all in and sharing Jesus as they did their work. Or in this case, he was calling them to go on tour with him and actually do the ministry and be the leaders of a future church. They, it required them going all in. I've had relationships with many believers over the years, but there are only a certain ones that I found that truly helped me go on mission with Jesus. And it was those who were on that mission saying, that's what's most important to me. They weren't just Christian by identity. They were Christian in life. They were living out for Christ, and they were on mission with Jesus. And as a result, it pulled me along. And then eventually, I was walking side by side, and we were mutually affecting each other. And then I can enjoy the opportunity to do the same, to have others join me as I pursue Jesus being all in. So I share that from last week, that, that Christ modeled that we don't go it alone. We do this with people that have the same mission and vision that God provides and are willing to go all in in order to understand how Jesus chose his friends. But then Jesus provides another example of friend choices within his oikos. So we use that term here. It comes right out of scripture. It's the descriptive term of the relational sphere of influence. It literally means household. And so today we're going to actually look at the oikos of Levi, also known as Matthew. And so in this, Jesus is creating his own oikos. He is creating that inner circle by which he's going to influence others to go on mission with him to change the world. 
So far, he has a bunch of fishermen. Now he's going to add a tax collector. And so we're going to pick up that story in verse 27 of chapter 5. So will you join me in reading this? It says this, They said to him, I'm sorry, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. So went all in to join the mission and vision of Jesus, right? Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, so let me give a little context. So in the time, in this, in this story right here, very brief, there, is, there are several characters that need to be, be defined. One of them being tax collectors. What are they? First of all, they were people that, had, uh, that were secured in contract with the Roman government to collect funds from the local citizens. How you got those jobs was you would actually bid for them. So if you wanted the job of tax collector, you would put in a bid saying, I will collect from, from this little borough and I will do it for this price. And then Rome agrees to pay them that amount. And then that tax collector then has the freedom to go and collect taxes from the local citizens. And even to the knowledge of the Romans, that tax collector would collect more than what Rome was asking for. And as a result, they were padding their own pockets. Now, many of these tax collectors were Romans. They, they, they weren't uh, necessarily Jewish. They were Romans that got the bid. But a vast majority of the tax collectors, especially the ones mentioned in the New Testament, were Jewish. So imagine if, you, if, if for some reason the United States came under the control of a foreign government. And as a result, that new foreign government solicited tax collectors from within our people. So here in Lidditz, they were choosing tax collectors, and somebody from within this group right here in this room bid to be a tax collector. And you start hearing that the amount that they were supposed to take from people is actually lower than what they're actually receiving, and they're starting to become wealthy while the rest of us are being impoverished. What would be your emotion to that individual, knowing that they were part of this church, part of this church community, and had been part of Lidditz for years, or Ephrata, or Mannheim, or Township, doesn't matter, that they were part of this area for years, and now they're getting rich off of everybody else at their own, to their own peril? How would you feel? Well, I will tell you, you wouldn't feel too good. In fact, you would probably, if they were your friend, you, they would not, no longer be your friend. You would reject them. You would, you would not want to be aligned with them because you wouldn't want your reputation being the same as them. So you would separate completely. And so you have the tax collector. Then the other person that's mentioned here that, that the Pharisees were concerned about that was at this table eating with Jesus were sinners. Now, you're thinking, well, aren't all of us sinners? 
except for in the context of this, sinners were actually a constituent, a, a particular group of people, Gentiles. So if you were non-Jew, you were referred to as sinners. And so you've got in this room tax collectors and Gentiles, both of which would not be a desired house guest at your table for a meal. So keep in mind, Jesus is creating his core. His, his inner four is already there, the core four, but now he's building that 12, and he's choosing fishermen, which can be accepted, but it's not a likely choice because they're lower on the social pole, so to speak. But tax collectors would not be on the list at all. They would be a rejected idea. And now you're adding Gentiles into this circle of relationships. It's undoing the religious elite that are there watching his every move. They are, they are concerned that he is choosing poorly who his company is. And so you have these sinners that were, that were likely Gentiles. Now, sometimes sinners can be referred to as those who are Jewish but weren't practicing the law. They had rejected the law. It's not likely in this case. We also know the word sinner can refer to all of us who've fallen short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 5.8. You know, while we, we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in this text where Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to, re, to repentance. It's the same word, but used in context, you know what it means. So when it's referring to a constituent of people, in particular to an audience, it was referring in this case likely to Gentiles. So there, you have the setting that's in the room. But now you have this calling to Levi. In verse 27, he says to Levi, follow me. And Levi gets up and leaves everything and follows after Jesus. That's exactly the same tenor that happened with the disciples that were called, that were fishermen. It says they left everything and began to follow him. So the same, same response. He leaves everything. So he leaves the table of money. He leaves the career that had made him rich. And he's now following after Jesus. And then, he, uh, then you see that he invites a group of people to his house to eat. And it's Levi's oikos. Now, let me put this into context. If you're a tax collector and you're known as a betrayer to your own people group, and your family has rejected you because you're too shameful in the eyes of the public to have still within your family. So your family's rejected you. You have no friends that are generally a part of the Jewish population because, again, they don't want their reputation being aligned with you because that could cause them being rejected by their family. So who are you left with? The Romans don't want to befriend you because you're Jewish. So you're left with other tax collectors. So Levi also known as Matthew, uh, who wrote the book of Matthew. He, he had, his only friends were tax collectors. So when he's going to have a meal with his oikos, he invites all these other tax collectors and likely some of the Romans that he had relationship with. Gentiles, sinners. So they're all at the table. And then you have some of these disciples that had already been called probably in the room. And then you have the religious Pharisees that are making sure that everything's being done in the right manner. They're looking around the room. They're seeing all these people whose reputations are not great. 
And they're probably even concerned for their own reputation being in the presence of all of these tax collectors. Because again, there's a whole strew of them there sitting at the table. And Jesus seems undaunted by the fact he's with this crowd. So you've got this situation that you can see that the, the wheels are turning with those Pharisees that are there, and they're trying to figure out if this is appropriate. I mean, after all, the risk that Jesus took here in having friends that are irreputable are as this. There's three primary risks, especially in a Jewish culture. First of all, your reputation, it takes a hit. Up to this point, what's Jesus' reputation? Teacher, powerful teacher, healer, powerful healer, able to exercise demons out of demon-possessed people, powerful incredible compassion. He was showing empathy to those who had been rejected by the elites of society. So that was his reputation. But now he's sitting at a table with tax collectors. This is going to hurt your reputation, Jesus. Well, then they can also begin, when you take this on, when Jesus has this group, his motives might be questioned now. Why would Jesus sit at a table with such people all right, so in their minds, they're probably thinking, well, maybe he's thinking he's going to get rich and he could take their resources and then go on tour and have it paid for and have lights and smoke and make it really big. Well, I don't know what they might have been thinking, but they certainly are questioning his motives. Maybe Jesus is going to hook his wagon to both Jew and Gentile. Maybe he's going to figure out a way to bridge the Roman government with the Jewish society and, and use his influence that way. Maybe that's his motive. They're trying to figure it out, but it's elusive for him because they can't figure it out. But then certainly, without a doubt, accusations were flying as they're thinking and talking between themselves. They're accusing him of maybe he's going to be just like them. He's going to build influence and then he's going to turn on his own people just like the tax collectors. He's more Roman than he is Jewish. You can hear the accusations in your own mind, can you not? Now, to be fair to the Pharisees, they're dealing with a lot of Scripture that would suggest Jesus is making a mistake in this moment. Even Paul, who is a follower of Jesus Christ, who, who was teaching after Jesus had ascended to heaven. So after this, several years later, makes this comment in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, do not be misled. And he's talking to Christians. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. That's Paul, follower of Jesus, saying, don't be misled because bad company will corrupt your, your, your good character. In other words, to say, if you're with good company, your character will stay good. So Paul teaches that as part of Christendom. We're still under that directive, that, that good company is what we should be around if we want good character. But the, the, and the negative side of it is don't be misled. If you hang out with bad company, it will corrupt your good character. How do you align that with what Jesus is doing here? He's with people who are stealing, people who are lying, people who are traitors to their very own. How do you align that statement of Paul to Jesus? Then you look at what the Pharisees actually had at their fingertips to be able to question Jesus in this moment, that he's hanging out with such people. Consider these verses found in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20 says this, Walk with the wise, 
and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Walk with the wise and become wise, but if you hang out with the fools, you'll become a fool. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 7. A discerning son heeds instruction, but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father. Now think about the environment there. What was the core issue of those who are tax collectors? They could never have enough. They always wanted more. They were gluttons. They were greedy. And Proverbs says, a discerning son heeds instruction, but a companion of such people like these tax collectors would disgrace their father. All this is in the mind of the Pharisees as they're looking at this in front of Jesus. Then you also have a passage in Proverbs that says this, a man who loves wisdom brings joy to his father, but a companion of prostitutes <laughs> squanders his wealth. Somebody who will sell their soul to do something else that is not according to the, to the scriptures, you will lose everything. Then you have Proverbs 18.24 that says this, One who, is un, who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Would you call tax collectors reliable? Yet Jesus was saying, come near to me, be around me, hang out with me. Unreliable friends will come to ruin. But there's a friend who would stick closer to the brother. So why Jesus would ever bring this group together in a room to be near him does not make sense. Or how about this in Proverbs where it says, stay away from a fool for you will not find knowledge on their lips. There's nothing to gain from them. So don't even be near them. Don't hang out with them. There's no advantage. There's no benefit. Stay away. Or lastly, this one to me, this, this is the proverb that just says, Jesus did not know what he was doing when, he, when it says this, the righteous, the holy ones, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. It seems to me that Jesus is being rather careless, so it seems, in the choosing of his friends. He has liars, cheaters, People that have horrible reputations sitting in this room and he's having fun with them and enjoying their company. I understand why the Pharisees would be judging him in this moment, but they're missing out on the intentions of Jesus and the vision that he had that comes from God himself. So let's look at this and try to understand it from Jesus' perspective. Now we understand why the Pharisees are being so critical, but let's understand why Jesus wasn't being flippant. So first of all, we see in Jesus, in verse 31, when he says this, when answering the question, why are you doing this? He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus saw their need, period. He saw that these irreputable people, the tax collectors, these Gentiles, that they needed what he had to offer. God did not categorize his redemptive plan. His plan was to show redemption and to share that redemption with all of humanity. That was part of his plan. It says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the Jew that he gave it, 
for God so loved the world. And see, in the mind of the people in this moment, the Pharisees, they were looking at this saying, God only loves us. And not only just Jews, but the righteous Jews. Not all Jews, just the righteous one. And Jesus saw it differently. Listen, these people are sick. They're in need of what I have to offer. So he saw their need, and therefore Jesus welcomed them into his relationship, his relational world. Secondly, Jesus' motives were consistent and in line with the mission that God had given him. It says that he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we're part of that world. So he came to draw those who are broken, which is all of us. We're all sinners. All of us are in need of what Jesus has to offer. So his motives and mission for having relationship with these irreputable people was consistent with what God was asking him to do. God didn't send him to only save the Pharisees who saw themselves as already righteous. God sent him to save people who knew they were in need of help, which includes all of humanity if they're willing to look in the mirror. And so the, Jesus saw the need. His motives and mission were in line with God. And then you see that it wasn't to be like them, but rather to draw them to something different. Verse 32 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The idea of repentance means that he wants them to turn and go a different direction, to reject where they've been, to go a different way. And so Jesus is saying, my mission is not to become like these tax collectors. My mission is to see their need and then help them turn and go a different direction. That is consistent with God. God's heart being he sees the need, he goes after the need, and serves the need. And then the mission is, is that it's to help all those who are in need of that redemptive story that is offered in Jesus alone. Thirdly, well, you also can learn, because again, this whole series is based on looking at the life of how Jesus lived so that we can apply it to our own lives and live like Jesus lived. So this is dealing with relationships. We see how he is aligning himself to not go it alone. We see that he is choosing people that are willing to be on mission together, and he's choosing people that are willing to say, I'm all in, not partially. I'm all in. My heart's fully committed to Jesus. He's doing that. But we now see him ministering to those in need who are irreputable, He's doing so because he wants to save them. So he's in line and mission with God. But you need to not lose this. This is so important. He didn't do this haphazardly. He didn't do this flippantly. He did it from a position of strength. And he modeled it to his very disciples. What do I mean by that? When I was a freshman in college, I was struggling with the idea of, of how Jesus was hanging out with such people with such reputation. The reason why I was struggling with that is because I had a friend who was going to the bars and he was drinking up a storm and claiming he was doing it to reach people for Jesus. And he was a pastoral major in that at the school I went to, and yet he was getting drunk. Because I, I was an RA, I, I, well, I wasn't at the time. I was going to be an RA, but I was a Bible study leader at that time. And, and I was like, call him out. I was like, why are you doing this? Why are you getting drunk? He says, I'm reaching people for Jesus. The people at the bar need Jesus. 
And I was struggling because I couldn't reconcile the way Christ calls us to live with the idea, but then I'm seeing this text and he's hanging out with people that are irreputable. And on top of that, Jesus was even accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. Not because he was being gluttonous or that he was drunk, but because he was hanging out with those who did. So how do you reconcile this? So I began to study consistently because this was I, a professor challenged me. Well, why don't you study the life of Christ and see why he did what he did and see if you can find that this guy that's friend of yours is supported in his decision making. So I studied it. And what I came away with was this idea of the 80-20 principle. My words, not meant to be absolute, just my own description of looking at the life of Jesus. The 80-20 principle is this. Jesus spent 80%, approximately 80% of his time with those who were doing mission with him. Those who were committed to Jesus, those who were committed to the mission of God and were willing to serve. He spent 80% of his time with them. And as a result, from that 20%, those disciples were very strong and influential and built up. So he sent them out to go spend time with the irreputable. They were going from a position of strength. And I believe Jesus modeled this very well with his inner core showing that, listen, you can go and be with all of these people that are irreputable when you are aligned with me and, and where it can't be argued that you're living for God and that when you give part of your time to helping those who are in need of a Savior, you can be with them and be the influencer, not the influenced. You see, I believe Jesus modeled for these disciples relationally and therefore for us that if we are operating from a place of strength where we are not going it alone, we're also doing it alongside of other brothers and sisters in Christ who are strengthening us and we're strengthening them and that we're on mission with God, we're all in, then you know what? I do believe you could go into a bar and be an influencer. Now, not to become like them, but to go in and speak into them when there is need. So please hear me in that. That is, it's an extreme case, but you need to understand, this is extreme in their eyes. This is extreme that he would be in company with tax collectors. So we see this principle of a position of strength. And so what do we learn from Jesus then that we could apply to our lives? And the first is this. We have to have a core friend, a core friends that are in our oikos, that are all in with Jesus, that are sharpening us and strengthening us. That is so important to hear in this. We don't just go flippantly from, a, from any position and go into the place where all those who are pursuing after evil might be and expect us to be the influencer. You must be grounded in, in those who can speak into your life, and you can speak into theirs, and you mutually are pursuing Jesus together. So you start with a core like that. Secondly, to maintain being the influencer, you have to have that position of strength where there are people that can see your blindness and make sure that you're on mission. They have to be close enough to you that they can challenge your motives. They can challenge your thoughts and your intentions. And then thirdly, if you have those relationships, then you can have relationships with the irreputable and in your oikos as long as it is intentional because you're intentionally directed by the Holy Spirit to be involved in their life. If not, and you're not intentional, you will become the influenced. It's just fact. 
So while I can say there have been times in my life that I thought I could be friends with anybody and be okay, I can tell you that it didn't take long when I didn't have intentional motives in my relationship with them that, that I became either numb or more similar like them spiritually. But when I was operating in relationship with others that were really sowing into me hard, and I was mutually sowing back into them, and then I was praying intentionally about some of these people that I had relationship with that didn't know Jesus, I found that in those moments, I was having an effect on those irreputable people, not them on me. I believe so much in the model of Jesus. While he didn't prescribe 80-20, I believe he prescribed it by the way he lived. And we should follow his lead. I share in closing a story that happened to me uh, when I was in college. I was working at a bank that, uh, where there were several college students that were working at this bank during the summer break. And we got to be good friends, and we did some things together after work, going to the beach and, and hanging out. And, and it was very light, but they were very intrigued by the fact that I was majoring in youth ministry. Many of them did not and had not ever attended church. And so they were very intrigued by this idea of what does that mean? And so I would share different things with them. And, uh, and over time, I built quite a rapport with them. So on my last day, they had planned to do a gathering at one of the girls' house that night. She had a swimming pool and said, you know, we can have fun together that night before you go back to college because I went to college in Missouri. So I showed up at the house. The girl who owned the house came to the door and greeted me saying, we're going to have so much fun tonight. I bought several cases of beer. I looked at her like, oh, Okay, I wasn't expecting that. I had my bathing suit with me, and so it's like, well, you can go out to, you know, a bunch of people are going to be swimming. So I went out back, and, uh, and, well, I changed in my bathing suit. I go out there, and there was a bunch of people in the pool. And as soon as I got into the pool, all of them got out with the exception of one girl. You see, they had planned for this to happen. This girl had an interest in me, and so she, they set it up that as soon as I got there and I got in the pool, that they would all leave, and it was just me and her. Needless to say, I got out of the situation as quick as possible. That's a whole other story that, that you can ask me privately. But I, I was able to get out of the situation. I, I went back into the house, and finally the girl who owned the house said, well, it's time to break out the drinks. Well, what do you want to have? And she asked me first. I said, well, what do you have? And she goes through all the types of beer she had. And I said, no, I don't want any of that. And I said, do you have any soda? She goes, well, I have Mountain Dew. And I was like, all right, I'll take Mountain Dew. I hate Mountain Dew, all right? But it was the only option I had in the moment, so I took Mountain Dew. And then she started asking around, what do you want? What do you want? Everybody chose Mountain Dew. And by the end of the night, as I, it's now time for me to go because I got to drive back to Missouri the next day, I, the, the one girl who owned the house says, this was so much fun tonight, and I'll actually remember it tomorrow. So who had the influence? One Christian or eight non-Christians. I can tell you at that time in my life, I, had, I was a part of a men's Bible study where a pastor was investing in me personally, and those, there was about a dozen guys that were mutually sharpening each other. I was at one of the strongest points of my college years. God used me to change an entire party without even knowing that was going to be the issue. Several months later, as I come back over the Christmas holiday, this time, I gathered everybody at our house. 
And it was during that night, we had a lot of fun, and one of the girls came up to me and said, I want you to know that some of the things you shared with us last summer really got to me, and I'm, I'm attending church now. I never got the rest of the story. My family moved away from that area. I don't know whatever happened to the eight, but I learned a very valuable lesson that you can't go into those situations flippantly. If I wasn't in a place of strength, if I wasn't grounded with others around me, I would have gone into that party and I would have become part of the party, defined as they wanted it. But because I was coming in with an intention, I've been praying. My mentor had me praying for all eight of them that I could, it would be violating them at the very core of my being to have joined in what they were wanting to practice that night. And so I stayed the party, but the party adapted to me and the values that I had, and it impacted them. You see, that's just an example of what I mean, that God can place you in the most difficult of spots. If you're in a position of strength, you can become the influencer for the glory of God. Or if you're walking it alone, and you're not having people speak into you, you'll be just become part of the party. No different. You're the influence, not the influencer. And I believe, biblically, Jesus modeled wholeheartedly, that everybody is in need of him. But we don't go into it without intention. We go into it intentionally praying up, being served up by those who build us up so that we can be a blessing and an influence to those who so desperately need Jesus. Let's pray. So Jesus, I thank you that you modeled that you're willing to go and serve the sick even if their reputation is so horrible. You give us such a great example that there are no boundaries to the grace of God. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd put upon our heart people we need to draw closer to to sharpen us. Draw upon our heart that out of that strength, the who we need to begin to pray for that needs Jesus so desperately. And then, God, give us leadership by the Holy Spirit to go and build relationships with those who need you that might even have a bad reputation. So God, by your Holy Spirit, help us to be those kind of people who are following Jesus' example, where all who are in need of a Savior are willing to have a compassionate ear from us. Thank you for that example, Jesus. We glorify you now in this moment. Amen. So if you would like to pray with somebody, we have people up front that would be glad to pray with you perhaps praying that God would bring people into your life to sharpen you. And don't forget, we provide means for that as well. But maybe you need to just pray with somebody to have them pray with you on, God, help me to see who's in my life that I need to be intentional about that needs Jesus. They're sick. They're dying. They're, they're in need of a change of reputation uh, that maybe God, we can pray with you to help God show you the vision uh, for what he can do through you. So let me pray a prayer of blessing over you to commission you. So God, I just pray that in Jesus' name, you'll help our eyes to see those around us that are in need of Jesus, that we can be from a position of strength, be able to influence to your grace so that they can discover what we've discovered is so beautiful and undeserved. And so we say thank you, Jesus, for redeeming us. But now, Lord, use us to sow seeds of the good news of what Jesus provides especially to those that might be irreputable. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.